the reading this morning can be found on page 1179 of the Blue Bibles, and it's taken from Philippians chapter 2, reading uh, from verses 1 to 11, uh, that's page 1179. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The date, 1982. January the 13th, the place, Washington, D.C. Shortly after takeoff, um, Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the icy waters of the Potomac River, hit a bridge um, as it went down. Tragically, 78 people lost their lives. And in the midst of that tragedy, the actions of uh, one man captured the, the uh, attention of the nation. Journalists were quickly on the scene. They captured uh, remarkable images. And this is how Time magazine reported it. As disasters go, this one was terrible, but... Not unique. There were the unusual elements of the bridge, of course, and the fact that the plane clipped it at a moment of high traffic, one routine thus intersecting with another and disrupting both. Then, too, there was the location of the event, Washington, the city of form and regulations, turned chaotic, deregulated by a blast of real winter and a slap of metal on metal. And there was the aesthetic clash as well, the the blue and green Air Florida sunk down among the grey chunks in a black river. All that was worth noticing, to be sure. Still, there was nothing very special in any of it, except death, which, while always special, 
does not necessarily bring, bring millions to tears or to attention. Why then the shock here, they ask? Well, the person the report carries on most responsible for the emotional impact of the disaster is the one known at first as simply the man in the water, balding probably in his 50s, an extravagant moustache. He was seen clinging with five other survivors to the tail section of the airplane. This man was described by the crew of a police helicopter as appearing alert and in control. Every time they lowered a lifeline and flotation ring to him, he passed it on to another of the passengers. In a mass casualty, you'll find people like him, said the helicopter pilot, but I've never seen one with that commitment. When the helicopter came back for him, the man had gone under. His selflessness was one reason the story held national attention. Selflessness. Selflessness. We all know what it means, don't we? But rarely do, do words set an example as much as actions do. Stark actions. And that one man's ultimate um, act of self-sacrifice, as he struggled amongst that plane wreckage in those icy waters of the river, was a clear and forcible uh, example of selflessness. One final quote from that Time magazine report. At some moment in the water, he must have realized that he would not live if he continued to hand over the rope and the ring to others. He had to know it. No matter how gradual the effect of the cold, in his judgment, he had no choice. When the helicopter took off with what was to be the last survivor, he watched everything in the world move away from him. And he deliberately let it happen. I've no idea whether that man in the water was a Christian or not, but in that one defining, that one life-ending moment for him, he reflected the ultimate sacrificial example of Jesus Christ, giving his life so that others might live, not just for the four or five survivors uh, in, in, in the river, but for the whole world. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth with the express purpose of dying on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. All of his 33 years were building to that one history-shattering moment when he watched everything in his world just move away from him as he was abandoned by his friends. And he, too, deliberately let it happen. So yes, Jesus was born ultimately to die. We're going to be looking at that in a few weeks' time. But for those who believe and trust in his sacrifice, he was also born to be our example. We see this most clearly in the passage that Audrey's just read for us, Philippians 2. So please do open that up again if you have your, your Bibles with you. If you've got your phone, uh, have a look at it on, uh, on your phone. Um, if you've brought your own Bible, does anyone still bring their own Bible to, to, to do, do, do it? <laughs> it's great to have your own Bible with you. Um, but Philippians uh, chapter 2, open that up. And as you're finding that, let me pray for us. Lord God, please, this morning, would you help us to understand more of the significance of the Lord Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago? <clears throat> please help us to see how his life of sacrificial service, his humility, his putting 
the needs of others before his own should be our example to follow this morning. We ask that in his name. Amen. Okay, I've got three headings uh, for us um, this this morning. And um, the first is this, um, uh, our need. Our need. What does the church need? Verse uh, 1 of chapter 2 says this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. What does the church need? In a word, unity. In a word, unity. These uh, chapter, I know uh, many of you will know this, but these chapter and verse divisions uh, uh, that we have these days in, in many ways are un- unhelpful. Um, verse 1 is a continuation of the point that, that Paul is making um, in the first chapter, in chapter 1, and, and um, uh, verse 27. Um, there he's talking about the fact that, that Christians should conduct their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. That's what he's, he, he's saying just as, as we lead up to this, this passage. And, and the last three verses of chapter 1 are saying that the, how you live a life worthy of the gospel, one of the ways you do that is by standing firm against external attacks. External attacks. But here in chapter 2, Paul wants us to know that a life worthy of the gospel stands firm uh, against internal attacks too. And nothing... Nothing kills a church faster than poisonous division from within. And so Paul says, stand firm by being united. Notice how he builds his argument here. He's not actually questioning um, whether those qualities are in evidence uh, amongst the Philippians. Um, he, you know, if there is any encouragement uh, here, you know, is there, isn't there, this sort of doubt. It, it, it's probably more accurate to replace the word if uh, with since. Um, or if, as is indeed the case. It's a, more affirming in, in that sense. So Paul is writing uh, here um, in the same way that we may say something along the lines of, you know, since there is encouragement in Christ here at St. John's, be of the same mind, since there is. If, as is indeed the case, there is comfort from love in Hartford, then maintain that same love. Since there is participation, since there is fellowship in the spirit at, at St. John's, then be in full accord with each other. And you could say, if as is indeed the case, there is tenderness and, and compassion in the church, then, then be of one mind. But the emphasis on that is not on the sins, or the, it, it's on the same mind, the, the, the same love, the, the full accord, the one mind. This, it's, the emphasis is on the unity here. And what is really, I find quite striking about this, is how this stirring appeal must, for Paul, have been rooted in experience. Must have been an experience. He's not making this stuff up. But he's got to, surely he's got things in mind that's making him say this sort of stuff. You know, like whether it's when we're gathered together in a group, like we are on a Sunday or in a smaller group, and, you know, we're aware of God uniquely in a, in a very uh, uh, unique and intimate and special way, whether that's through, through the word being spoken and preached, whether it's through the songs, through prayers. 
Maybe it's like those times when um, we're gathering together or, or somebody comes around and, and they just maybe just drop a meal off or a cake at the right time, you know? And you just, there's just that little touch of, of kindness that just, just, just goes the extra, extra mile. Maybe it's the experience of tears being shared, cups of tea being made, troubles being listened to, good times celebrated. Encouragements being texted or written in a card and, and, and posted off. In short, look, whenever we have felt God's love, whenever we have experienced that joy, the benefits of being part of his family, Paul is saying, look, in light of all of that experience, don't mess it up by being divided. Don't. Don't let division kill the church. Be united. I'm not sure how you would describe our unity here at St. John's. I think there is much to give thanks for. Uh, there is much to give thanks for in our, in our church family. We have our brothers and sisters from Hong Kong who have joined us over, over the last year or so and, and, and longer. We have new folk joining our church. We've had baptisms and, and confirmations recently. We, we, we work together in, in the most wonderful ways on, on, on projects and, and events. Witnessed yesterday when we had the Hartford Christmas Fair and the church was open, all coming together to do amazing stuff. But as in any church... There's always change, and there's mistakes, and things that can happen where misunderstandings creep in, and that can all be quite unsettling for us. Maybe some friends leave, and, and, and they move away to pastures new. Maybe there's change in the church that, that you don't like. Maybe there's not enough change in, in the church. Then there's mistakes, aren't there? And Things happen or balls are dropped and misunderstandings creep in and motives can be questioned. And all of a sudden, it's like the devil is forcing a stick of dynamite into just a small crack. And he's waiting to blow the church sky high. And Paul is saying to the Philippians here, be careful. Be careful. He's saying to us today, watch out. Be of one mind. St. John's, take care. Of course, we're never going to agree on everything, are we? We, um, we have very different opinions on lots of things. Music, uh, one thing. Uh, maybe the service and how it feels and how it's structured, that's, uh, that's another thing. Communion, how we should do it, how we should take it in a, a post-COVID world. Leadership styles, decision-making. I mean, I could just go on. We, we have differences of opinion over so much, don't we? And Paul is saying, look, he's not saying, look, you just need to be clones and you all need to think exactly the same thing. You all need to have the, the same view on exactly the same thing. And look, you can never disagree. He's not saying that. It's probably a relief, isn't it? I hope it is. <laughs> he's not saying that we all have to think the same way, that we all have to analyse the things in the same way, that we all see, see the, the truth from the same angle or the same perspective. It's unity that Paul is talking about here, not uniformity. It's unity, not uniformity. But we do need to be of one mind. And as Paul says elsewhere, what he means by that is that it is all to do with having the mind of Christ. That's the one mind. It's not that it's, um, it's just exactly the same but we all share the mind of Christ. That's what he's describing here. Christ's attitude, his example, his, his doctrine. 
And in that, the mind of Christ that we have, it's a mind that prioritizes certain things. So it prioritizes love, the mind of Christ, as we journey together. It prioritizes the needs of others above our own. It prioritizes encouragements amidst the battles and the struggles of life. This is indeed what is needed, unity, if there is to be any hope of our fellowship continuing and deepening here at St. John's. So how do we accomplish this unity then? How do we accomplish? Well, this is taking on board the very practical advice that Paul gives us next. This is our method, if you like. Our method is humility. The unity and harmony that Paul earnestly desires for his readers can only be achieved if we if we reject all forms of self-seeking, all forms of vainglory, and instead humbly regard each other, or humbly regard others from a personal point of view as more important than ourselves. Sometimes people think the Bible is irrelevant uh, because it's just so impractical. Well, I think verses like these (laughs) fly in the face of such nonsense. I think these are incredibly practical verses. Paul gives us three very down-to-earth tips um, here. Firstly, he says, never let selfishness or conceit be your motive. This is verse 3. Never let selfishness or conceit be your motive. Verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, pride, arrogance, smugness, that feeling of superiority that I'm always right, that need that my family does you know, whatever I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, any of that. That's not going to get us to unity. Don't let, he says, selfishness or conceit be your motive. Secondly, he says, regard others as more important than yourselves. This is the next part of verse 3. But in humility, he says, consider others better than yourselves. In other words, we've got to recognize our true standing. What is our true standing? That we are simply sinners saved by grace before God. That is our true standing. Nothing more, certainly nothing less than that. We've got to be modest and unpretentious, but we need to recognize that. Any success we have, any standing any position by you know the worldly view the worldly standards has simply come about because god has allowed it in his mercy and in his grace and he loves each and every one of the people that are set around you that are next to you just as much as he loves you and he values them just as much as he loves you they are just as important to him as you are to him And the best way that we can keep our egos in check, Paul is saying here, is to always think of everyone else as more important than us. Third tip from Paul here is uh, don't limit your attention to your own personal um, interests. So don't limit your attention 
to your own personal interest. This is verse 4. Uh, each of you should look not to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. That's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> it's very practical, this. He's saying don't be so self-absorbed that you fail to pay the necessary attention to your brothers and sisters who are in need around you. Instead, prioritizing, prioritize forgetting yourself, prioritize the needs of others above your own. One pastor tells of a vivid example of this kind of unity, um, this unity that self-forgetfulness can, can bring about. It's an example that goes back many years to Hitler's bombing of Britain, and here's what he writes. He said this, How often during that last war were we told of the extraordinary scenes in air raid shelters? How different people belonging to different classes, there in the common need to shelter from the bombs and death, forgot all the differences between them and became one. This was because in the common interest, they forgot the divisions, they forgot the distinctions, and they suddenly became united. How much more so does the church need to do the same? To forget those distinctions and those divisions and be united. St. John's in the fight against sin, in the fight against the world, in the, in the fight against the devil. We need to forget all those superficial, superficial divisions and dis- distinctions and unite in humility against that spiritual attack. And before we move on, it may well be worth just a couple of words about what humility isn't. Because humility is not um, a false modesty or being too self-focused true humility does honestly recognize two things it recognizes what we're good at and it also recognizes what we're not so good at and it neither makes too much of one or too little of the other we have to be honest with ourselves but not making too much of one and too or too much of another Now, on its own merit, this passage, uh, these couple of verses, um, read over and over and read with prayerful intent by each one of us, I think could lead to a quiet revolution (laughs) uh, in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our colleges, in our churches. One helpful thing here, and here's a suggestion for you, is to replace the word in um, uh, 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 verses 3 to 4, the word others, replace that word with a name, a name of someone you know. Uh, If you've got a pen or you're making notes on a phone, you might want to jot down a name, someone who's in your family, someone who's here in your church family, someone who's at work, maybe someone who you might struggle with a little bit. And then you say that and you pray it over and over in the context of these verses. A few years ago, when uh, uh, all our boys were still living at home, I experimented with this around the Teasdale uh, dinner table. I got uh, Nathan, our eldest, to um, read these verses and insert his brother's names into the gaps. <laughs> I got Jacob and Thomas, somewhat reluctantly, I have to say, to do the same. It made for, for quite an interesting, an interesting tea time. But what about if the first thing that you did at the start of a week, the start of a day was to think of that person that you struggle with the most. (laughs) Maybe there's a name coming straight to your mind as I say that. You know exactly who who it is, a family member, someone at work. What if if you inserted their name 
and prayed that through. This is powerful, life-changing stuff. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Lord, help me to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility to consider better than me. To not look to my own interest, but also to the interest of, insert the name. Friends, true humility is, uh, is a cure for, for selfish ambition. It's so hard to complain or to argue when you are pursuing true humility. But as game-changing and um, uh, amazing as verses 1 to 4 um, um, are, uh, they don't stand alone. And Paul is just about to link them with some of the, the most sublime, <laughs> the most incredible verses in scripture the most astounding majestic captivating verses in all of scripture as he points to Jesus's own story as the model of what he has just urged and so my third and final point is this that Jesus was born to be our best example we heard it read by Audrey earlier let's just go through it verse by by verse verse 5 says this your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What was Christ's attitude? Well, we've just seen it's one of unity through humility. He was pursuing unity through humility. And in other words, the only reason that we stand half a chance of having this attitude is because of what Jesus has has already done. And and Paul launches here into this wonderful summary of Christ's example which stretches back into eternity. It stretches forward into into eternity and it sort of stops off um, on planet earth in between verse six here we go who that's jesus jesus being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be grasped paul here wants us to picture um, if you like how jesus acted before he came to earth Ever since forever, Jesus has existed in the form of God. He is the second member of the Godhead. As such, he is coexistent. He is co-eternal. He is co-equal with God. Jesus was born to be our example of selfless motivation. He didn't try to grasp. He didn't try to hold on, if you like, to those benefits as Lord of all. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So if that was uh, how, how Jesus acted before, here Paul wants us to picture how Jesus acted as he comes to earth. In one sense, Jesus could have stayed where he was, couldn't he? But in full control, he willingly let go of it all and made himself nothing to serve us. He was born to be our example of regarding others as more important than, uh, than ourselves. As I said earlier, this isn't false humility. Jesus knows that is God. He is far more important than any of us. But he willingly chose to serve us. He willingly made us more important than any need he had to hang on to his glory. And effectively, he abandoned his rights and became a nobody. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man. Having abandoned that. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, this language is meant to shock us. 
meant to be a shock when we get to this point. The journey that, that we are taken on from the heights of glory. Of course, today, the cross has become a, a dulled and somewhat domesticated symbol, hasn't it? From pop stars to archbishops, from um, tattoos to, to sunglasses, church buildings to nightclubs, it just looks so nice, so fashionable, the cross. Not so. Not so. We can't let these, these kind of images of the cross affect how we read what is going on in God's word. Paul is trying to get his readers to see that God the Son was completely obedient to the Father. He died a revolting death on the cross. It was a death that was reserved for public enemies. It was death that was reserved for the dregs of the criminal justice system. Paul is taking us on this journey from the heights of glory with this equality with God now to the depths of hell and separation from the Father. This is what he's doing. All to accomplish our rescue from sin. See, Jesus was born to be our example of how attention to the interests of others will be painful It will be costly and it will involve suffering. Now you may be wondering, when are you going to link to the carol we sung, John? (laughs) Well, there's one short line in Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, that we we sang just before uh, the sermon. And it's right here in these verses. We sang, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Being very in very nature God, exalted to the highest place. That's what we were singing. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Next line. Mild he lays his glory by. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Mild, he lays his glory by. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Mild, he lays his glory by. He he paid the cost. He took on that pain. He experienced the agony of death for, for you and for me. Mild, he lays his glory by. And yet, and yet, and yet, never forget that in doing that, Christ wins. (laughs) Christ wins. 
Paul can't forget that. The two things are bound up and, and, and he can't separate them and he wants his readers to see what all of this achieved. That's where we get to verse, where we get to verse 9, which says, Therefore, because of this, God exalted him to the highest place because of his obedience, because of his humility. He's exalted him to the highest place. He's given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know we don't do it, but if there's ever a passage of scripture that demands us to shout out, Amen, (laughs) it's one of those. It's one like this, isn't it? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And once the debt of sin, once our debt had been paid, God, God lifted up Jesus to this unprecedented position of glory and honor and power. And praise. And one day every knee will bow and one day every tongue will confess. That language of in heaven and, and on the earth and under the earth, that's meant to draw our attention to the fact that everybody ever created, everyone, saved or unsaved, will one day acknowledge the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. It may well be that you are you're here today and you don't know Jesus in a, in a, in a, in a personal way yet. And, and you, you can see that and you acknowledge that. And if that is you, then, then this is the question that is facing you today. Or if you're watching, indeed, that's you online. Then this is the question that's facing you. Are you going to voluntarily humble yourself before the Lord Jesus? Or are you going to be forced to do it when he comes again? Are you going to do it voluntarily? Or will you be forced? Because... The truth of this passage is that one day everyone will bow the knee. Please, if that is you, don't wait. Please don't wait. Act now. Cry out to Jesus. Say sorry for your selfishness. And ask God for his help. Because he will answer you. If you do that, if you pray that, if you cry out to him and if you ask for his help, he will answer you. He promises to do that. And you will be saved for eternity. Of course, I know many of you here already uh, confess Christ as Lord, and that is a truly wonderful thing. It's a miraculous thing. And I want this morning to leave you reflecting on verses 6 and 7, if I may. Verses 6 and 7, just to go back to, says this. Who, in being, being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of, of a servant and being born uh, being made in human likeness this is jesus voluntarily setting aside all the benefits of being god he chose to leave that and become a helpless dependent baby so as i as i finish i just want us to think about that for a moment what does that look like the lord of the entire universe sustaining the entire universe Dependent upon the umbilical cord of his mum. Mild, he lays his glory by. The word of life, unable to utter a word. Mild, he lays his glory by. The beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega, needing to learn how to. Walk, learn how to eat and to walk. 
and to speak and maybe to tidy his room and to obey his parents. Mild, he lays his glory by. And the one who, who never slumbers, the one who never sleeps, needing to rest, needing to, to, to kip, because he got tired. This is incredible. Mild, he lays his glory by. It does beg the question for us today, doesn't it? What are we currently doing? What are we currently holding on to that is keeping us from following Jesus' example here and serving others in such humility? Is it ignorance? Is it apathy? Is it our busyness? Is it our priorities? Is it preference or or a position? Is it an attitude or an ego? Friend, will you set it aside? Will you deliberately let it go? Will you follow Jesus' example and, and give him your all? Might well get uncomfortable. Probably will. There will certainly be a cost to following him and to following his example. Significant cost. And it may even cost you your life in all sorts of ways. But the unity of the church and our faithful witness to the glory of God depend on us having that attitude. Let's pray. Lord God, help us, please, to be united as your people through humility. Help us to think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. Father, help us to appreciate exactly what it cost your son to come to earth and to die for us. And please then would you help us to imitate our saviour, who was indeed born to be our example. Amen.